Hey everyone, this is the DKC Podcast, back again to bother you with sharp criticism, great music, and a whole lot of love. The podcast is written and produced by our own writers, and music for the show is produced and performed by Megan Conley. Hit the like button on Facebook, follow us on the Instagram, and subscribe to our newsletter. We will definitely have some new updates coming for you out soon, and I'll talk about that towards the end of the show, but uh, get involved, get excited, and keep your ears peeled. We've got an awesome show for you today, so without further ado, Megan, please drop the beat. Get excited. Drop, 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 drop. Welcome back, listeners. It's good to be back in the studio. And by studio, I mean my living room. Um, Today, I'm really excited for our episode today. I feel like I say that a lot, but I am generally excited for all of our episodes. Um, As you all know by now, we here at DKC kind of love to live just on the outside of what a lot of people consider to be, quote, the canon with a capital C. The conversation on not just our platform, but many platforms is usually relegated to contemporary music or post music, (laughs) as I've uh, heard our guest today call it and what i (laughs) what i think is overlooked and underrepresented of an underrepresented discipline is early music so without further ado i would like to introduce our guest today we have on the show dr allison de simone welcome hey thank you great to be here thanks for having me oh of course i am thrilled and i think i've been wanting to get you on the podcast for forever these days Um, And kind of like I was saying, just, you know, um, one of the things that we really try to do is to bring some light to very kind of underrepresented stuff. And by underrepresented, it pretty much means things that are not composed between 1860, no, later probably, 1860 and like 1950. But, you know, that's kind of our, (laughs) that's kind of the deal, I guess. So... You specialize in early music and Baroque music, yes? Do you want kind of want to give us your origin story? Yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, Yes, I guess I consider myself an early music specialist. So I'm a musicologist. Um, I teach uh, musicology, mostly early music at UMKC here in town. Um, And yeah, I like I like most people. I grew up playing the the canon of classical music and I didn't really encounter early music except for the greats like Handel and Bach and Vivaldi when I was playing viola and the Suzuki method um viola very badly let me add very embarrassingly badly (laughs) um but beyond that you know I didn't really encounter any early music until I went to college and I started taking organ lessons and then harpsichord lessons because I was a giant nerd and I wasn't good enough to get voice lessons. So I had to get, I had to go in a new direction with that. Um, and I just really fell in love with the repertoire and I had the chance to lead an early music ensemble my senior year and I loved doing that. And then I went to grad school for musicology and I just like kept following that track because I was finding Baroque specifically Baroque music, but all early music generally to be the sexiest music ever composed. And it just totally (laughs) did it for me so much. So I guess like, yeah, it's just, it was just like a whole lot of weird life experiences coming together 
and just leading me down this path of cool stuff that I get to share with you. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so other than it being the sexiest music ever composed, which George Michael might have a problem with that. I like it. Rest in too, peace. So it's okay. Yeah. R.I.P. Right. <laughs> right. sure. Rip. Um, so what what do you really like about Baroque and, and early music? I mean, they're both two very different things, um, but what is, what is some of the, one of the things that you really have grown to love about it? Mm-hmm. Maybe some of the first things that you found yourself being gravitated towards sure yeah um yeah first let me like make a distinction between these terms that we're using so baroque music is a specific subset of what we call early music is kind of an umbrella term so baroque music is music that was composed from about 1600 to 1750 so monteverdi on the early end and j.s bach and handel on the late end of that but early music we say in the field is uh you know anything from the in western classical music anything from the middle ages um, until, yeah, maybe like about the mid 18th century. So that encompasses, you know, medieval music and the Renaissance and the Baroque period. Um, yeah, what do I love about it? I, there are a couple of things. I think when I first started getting into this repertoire as a play, I mean, I came to it as a player first, like yeah. as a keyboardist. And what I loved about playing early music, specifically Baroque music, um, is that there are two elements of music that are juxtaposed in every piece written so on the surface baroque music is incredibly virtuosic it's like really hard and they're i mean you know tony yeah it's ridiculous like the flute stuff written there there are several things that people say are written for the flute but they're clearly written for the violin because where do you breathe (laughs) yeah oh yeah oh like well, I guess Bach actually did write for the flute, but um, also where do you Who breathe? Who is Bach? Where do you breathe? <laughs> um, yeah, no. So on the surface, Baroque music, and like we're talking any of it, um, is just so virtuosic and so ornamented and over the top and just like delicious and how it, you know, exudes this ostentation. But then when you look at it under the surface, it's really tightly controlled, like harmonically, especially when we get into the later periods, it's harmonically controlled very tightly. Um, you know, there are formal structures that start to govern this music that control it. And so for me, when I listen to a piece by Bach or Handel or Vivaldi or Corelli or Telemann or even going back earlier to Monteverdi, I get this like there's this push and pull in this music where there's freedom at the same time as control and they're sort of fighting against each other or working together at any time. And like that's what I find really exciting yes. about that music. Um, what was the other question? Yeah, no, that was the question. <laughs> oh, like why? Oh, how did I first get into it? I guess maybe like, yeah, like what were some of some the, of the, some of those things that you were like, Oh my gosh, this is for me. Or do you have a moment? I guess, did you have like a moment where you said, I am going to do that. I'm going to pursue this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely do. I think, I mean, I, I think I was coming to it throughout um, my undergrad as I was leading this early music ensemble and I was like, oh, this stuff is like really fun to play and it's really fun to jam like chamber wise in the setting with all of these people. But I went, when I went to Michigan for my PhD, I was going to write on Soviet Russian music, which I do have a very soft spot in my heart for. I love it. Nice. But, um, it was really early on, like even my first semester when I just started listening to other music. Oh, and I had done a Baroque music, nerd alert, Baroque music <laughs> summer camp. 
<laughs> pretty bad. Baroque Music Summer Camp called Toffle Music. Where do they even have Baroque Music Summer Camp? Is it in like the? Is it in like a wooden box? Like some? Do they do they host Baroque Music Summer Camp in? In wigs, do you? Um, I I wish. Uh, no, this one was actually at the University of Toronto. So, <laughs> but it was it's led on, by Toronto. like I know, but it's led by like one of the preeminent Baroque ensembles out there, and so it was really a privilege to go and learn from them. And that summer, this was the summer before my senior year of college, we performed. Well, one night, like we all got together just randomly, everyone in the program, and we just sight read the B minor Mass, which like blew my mind because awesome. that is hard. <laughs> And it was really fun. But one of the pieces we performed on our final concert was a mass setting, Misa Assumpta Est Maria, by the French Baroque composer Marc-Antoine Charpentier. And oh my God, the crunchiest, sexiest ninth chords in this piece just blew my mind and I loved it. And so when I got to grad school, I was like, oh, I should investigate more of his music. And that's when I found his opera called Midday or Medea. And I started listening to it, and it was it's truly one of the most beautiful operas ever composed. Like, if you haven't heard it, check it out. Some good flute stuff, some good Baroque oh, flute stuff in I it. Oh, you know I love the good old Baroque flute. Who was it? Was it, like, Vivaldi that got us, like, that dope piccolo? So- no, it was Handel. My bad. Oh, I can't and, tell them apart. This- and Ronaldo? Yeah, yeah. The really virtuosic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a sucker for a good piccolo solo. And I think... I think it was a lot like you when I started um, listening to Baroque music because when I was in school, I very much was this person. I was like, yeah, Mahler and yeah, Beethoven and yeah, not Brahms or or (laughs) Strauss. No, when I get a headache every time I hear something, I'm like, this is not for me. But I have always tried to use my courses to expand my knowledge on things that I don't know about or don't like, you know, and, right. and I, I had had it with Strauss. I was been forced to listen to a lot of this late romantic, early 20th century music. Um, and so I realized that I think because people seem to like not prioritize early or contemporary music at all, that those were both things that I found myself um, wanting to go towards. Mm-hmm. I didn't really start studying uh, early music seriously until I took a class with like Kelly Harness up at the University of Minnesota for grad school. That's awesome. I'm really jealous. (laughs) She's incredible. Yeah, she is incredible. And I, one of the things that was so pleasant to me um, about Kansas City is that we have a pretty, I guess, comparatively speaking, pretty vibrant Baroque or an early music Mm -hmm. scene here. There's, more concerts going on here than most of the cities that I've lived in. And I've lived in a few, but what do you, so you're involved a lot in the scene here. Yeah, no, I am. And I, yeah, I'm glad to have a chance to talk to everybody about some upcoming stuff that I'm really excited about. Um, Yeah, you know, I think Kansas City does a really good job with what we have in terms of producing early music. And that's a combination of, you know, groups like Friends of Chamber Music and the Harem and Jewel series that are great about bringing in groups from the outside. Yes. And yeah, I mean, which and we can talk about some of those shows that are upcoming uh, in just a minute. But we also do a good job. Like there are a number of early music performers in town. People have been trained uh, in historically informed performance. And those people seriously work their butts off to make it happen for us. And 
you know, I mean, I think the scene could be bigger, but it really is just about like resources and, and people having enough time to be able to do this. So with what we have, right. I think we do an amazing job. Oh, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I think contemporary music and Baroque music have uh, in common is how difficult it is to find people to play the instruments that you need them to play. Mm -hmm. I have a traverso, but I totally scalped it, you know? <laughs> there, Wait, I didn't know that. Uh, wait, yes, I did. I did know that. And why don't we use you more? I, because I suck at playing it right now. I know the fingerings. I have the Quants book on playing flute. I have a book that shows you how to play it because they're so different. Like the technology difference between now and between instruments that we were using in, in uh, earlier music is crazy. So the yeah. Baroque flute, instead of three pieces to that flute, there are four. They oh. have two separate middle joints, one of them Oof. for different tunings, oh, um, which I believe on the harpsichord, you can just kind of like clunk D, you yeah, know? Yeah, it's, I, well, depending on the instrument, it's a little easier. You know, it's okay, this is sort of off track, but my my friend, um, Kimmery Fick, shout out to Kimmery Fick out in Oregon, is a Baroque flute player, and we've been collaborating um, on some concerts, and we recently played in Denver, Colorado uh, together, and neither of us were used to the altitude, but you know what? That doesn't matter for harpsichord as much. It just like shattered oh her flute. I, yeah, her flute was like bending in ways oh that I, I, it was disturbing to me. And it was okay. Like she, she made it through, but then also just like, you know, the that you guys have to breathe to play your instruments. Right. Did you know that? I don't mm, know if you knew I, that. Sometimes, not if we're playing Bach, but right. I try not to breathe as much as I can. Well, don't play Bach at altitude. Yeah. Let's put it on a Baroque flute. Let's Jeez. put it that way. I can only imagine like and the other thing too like the moisture or the lack of moisture yeah, up there yeah. I could feel thank god I wasn't in Colorado playing for like a gig or something but I would have to pack extra lip balm for sure yeah yeah no it was uh I mean she did an amazing job Camry you were amazing but <laughs> that said oh my god I'm glad I played the harpsichord <laughs> right so you had kind of mentioned some upcoming mm -hmm. uh visiting peeps so, and, and oh my goodness, I was really excited about, this is one of the few performers that I've known about, um, Philippe Jarouski. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, Philippe Jarouski. Oh, oh, you got to get the <laughs> in there. Yep, that's right. <laughs> got to say, you know, I found this, I found this excellent recording that he did. It was a David Bowie tribute. Do you know what? about this? No. Oh my, okay, 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 okay. So, <laughs> Philippe. Jalowski did a David Bowie tribute of always crashing in the same car. It was arranged by David Lang. No way. That's yes. awesome. It is, that is amazing. It is gorgeous. I'm going to play this in all my classes, no matter what. I may I may have wept. I may have wept, Aww. Belinda. But um, yep. <laughs> we'll get there. Yes, we certainly will. But I'm so excited that he's going to be in town. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Philippe Jawlowski is, that's J-A-R-R-R, no, oh my, J-A-R-O-U-S-S-K-Y. Um, he is a countertenor, and the countertenor kind of, uh, what do you call it, Fach, right, the voice part? Sure, yes. Your voice area is, is a really, I think... Um, I think it's kind of coming back, really. But this was a very utilized voice part in a very barbaric way back in the day. Right, yeah. So the countertenor is our modern version because we no longer 
mutilate thankfully young boys in order to get them to become castrati which was right. all the rage in the 17th and 18th century we just mentally mutilate children to get them into music now well yeah yeah that's that's true <laughs> that is dark it's, it's our <laughs> that's show what this podcast is all about <laughs> all about bringing it down every week um yeah no so philippe jeruski so friends of chamber music is I'm sure many of the listeners know about this, but of course it's an amazing, uh, you know, sort of arts organization in town that brings chamber music, great chamber music to Kansas City uh, from outside, just like internationally renowned groups. And so Philippe Jaruski, the countertenor, will be here doing a program with the Boston Early Music Festival Chamber Ensemble uh, led by Paul Odette and Stephen Stubbs. Um, and Philippe Jaruski will be joined by another amazing early music performer, Amanda Forsyth. And they're doing um, this whole program that's sort of a, it's a pastiche. They've cobbled together, I mean, that sounds negative, but I mean, they've put together lots of different pieces by 17th century, mostly Italian composers surrounding the myth of Orpheus, which of course was like the most popular story. That is one of the most emo myths of all time. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty emo for sure. Uh, But you know, it's also about the power of music. So what better way to bring the story to life than setting it to music? And I think everybody's done an Orfeo at this point too, but. Yeah, and pretty much everyone who they're performing like wrote an opera based or some kind of cantata or something based on the myth. But it's cool how they put it together. They're not just performing Claudio Monteverdi's famous L'Orfeo from 1607. They're taking like little excerpts from all of these different works by um, Antonio Sartorio, Monteverdi, Luigi Rossi, um, Dario Castello, and they're sort of putting them back together to tell the story like using the music of many composers, which I think is really cool. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm just really excited. I've been listening to him more often lately because you told me to. Um, and I, I'm glad that works with some people. Yes, yes, it certainly does. <laughs> I'm, uh, I think he and his voice really highlight one of the things that I love about Baroque music is not only like cleanliness of tone, just mm. purity of tone, but... I think one of the coolest kind of conflicts in Baroque music is this restraint with which you have to play. Mm. Um, there's tons, especially in, in uh, kind of softer movements, the graves, if you will, the sarabans, these lilting uh, forms of music that are, you know, very structured. But there's also a lot of restraint within that structure and it almost feels like a lot of the time when it's performed well that the music is just bursting at the seams Mm -hmm. it has to fight against the form fight against the structure fight against really that purity and be able to bring emotion into it when there's a little flutter of vibrato even a Mm -hmm. hint of it you're just like oh yeah no I think I mean I think you've just hit the nail on the head like it's that again it's like that restraint and that control at the same time is just like this extraordinarily virtuosic music just I mean the combination of that is just so fascinating and you're right I mean I think Jaruski is just the consummate performer when it comes to that restraint like there's my favorite recording by him is a CD of arias by the um, 18th century composer Nicola Porpora, who was a contemporary of Handel. Yeah. And oh my goodness, like, yeah, like the track on there, Alto Giove, where he just enters in this note and it's just this clean, straight tone, and then he swells into it. And it lasts for like 
I don't know, maybe a minute or I don't even really know. Long. Speaking of not breathing, I think yeah. he's only breathed once in, in <laughs> his know. entire life. He's still in his entire life. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, that is definitely a concert not to be missed. Um, and it's happening. Actually, let me just check my calendar here. Uh, it will be on our calendar on the Diacritical website, so you can check it out there. But he will be, uh, Philippe Jaruski and the Boston Early Music Festival Chamber Ensemble will be here on November 24th at 2.30 p.m. So you can check that out on our calendar or on the Friends of Chamber Music site to get your tickets. Awesome. And, oh, wait, let's not forget this. Um, the University of Missouri, Kansas City Conservatory of Music, Dance, and Theater. We're is- actually just the UMKC Conservatory. Right. Period. Now. Right. Because yes. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, they so... truncated the name to make it less confusing, which no. I, I mean, I think for branding, it works probably a little bit better. Sure. But yes, I mean, now we have theater. Yay, theater. Yay. It's easier to put on a t-shirt. But <laughs> they are doing, is it this fall or this spring? They're doing Dido, which is not the awesome alternative uh, singer. Quiet Times. It's not Quiet Times, Dido. This is... <laughs> no, no, it's not. What was that one song like she did that was uh, White Flat... I Will Go Down With The Ship. Oh, yeah. Didn't I'm... she do that one? I can't Better remember. Rise up and surrender. Oh, yeah, I'm really tone deaf. No, I'm not. <laughs> I just can't sing at all. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, no, UMKC Conservatory, the Department of Opera, is putting on a double header this October. I think it opens on Halloween. Uh, which and they're witches and sorceresses in Dido yes. and Aeneas. So, um, so they're doing production of Henry Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, uh, along with a Rossini opera called Il Cambiale, I think, which I've actually never heard of, despite teaching opera history. So, <laughs> oops. So uh, that should, yeah, it should be really good. And I'm really excited that UMKC is branching out. A few years ago, we did a production of Handel's Rodolinda. Did you play in that pit? No, no, I did not. That was another uh, person. Okay. (laughs) Well, let's move on from there. But (laughs) no, it was a really good production, but Handel is real hard and real long. So I think Dido and Aeneas, which is a shorter opera and it's in English and it's just a different style of music. I think it's really a lot more accessible to audience members at the same time as being, I think like, probably I would imagine maybe a little bit more fun for the students to tackle just because it's a makes it just a little more accessible yes and Dido being very accessible is um kind of fitting it was premiered for a girl's school yes Mm -hmm. and um I I have always really loved Dido Kelly Harness made us buy an entire book about Dido (laughs) and um I I, I read in this book, it has an essay by Joseph Kerman, our Lord and Savior, Joseph Kerman, um, where he says, quote, Dido is a unique work, innocent of any indigenous operatic tradition and written not far, not for the Roy Soleil, which I imagine means Royal Circus, but it probably doesn't. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think, <laughs> you know what, you're close, actually. <laughs> oh, my God. He said it's, it is dashed off with a cheerful incorrectness which would have horrified Luli. Just must be hard to horrify Luli because that dude stabbed himself in the foot with a giant baton. <laughs> um, 
Wow, there are so many fascinating things in there. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dido and Aeneas is a, it's definitely a weird opera. Um, I mean, you know, yes, Joseph Kerman may be memorialized on a t-shirt that you own. Um, but he yes. had some special, he had some special thoughts about opera that I'm not sure everyone shares. Like he called all of Puccini's operas "quote unquote" shabby little shockers. Uh huh. <laughs> Ooh, burn. Um, yeah, no, Taito and Aeneas is a weird opera. It it, I wouldn't say there were no like native English operas before that, but that's, you know what, we don't have to get into that history lesson today. But what's good about it is, like, as you said, it was originally probably composed for an all-girls school, like, you know, younger younger girls, probably ages like 12 to 16, so, and they're not professionally trained singers. So, yeah, the music, it, it's not that it's easy, certainly, but it's not Again, it's not Handel, it's not Bach, it's not these long, melismatic passages of vocal ornamentation that where you can't breathe. Right. It wouldn't be like Indiana doing Parsifal. Check out check out that podcast episode, <laughs> y'all. Right. Well, with that, I think this is a good place to take a little break. Y'all, we'll be right back talking about more Baroque and early music in a hot second. So we are back with Dr. D, Dr. Allison De Simone. Welcome again. Thank you. Still, we haven't moved from this place, but but we are drinking so, delicious tea. So yes. Be jealous. I call it barista flex. It's uh, <laughs> you know after years of uh, really you know grinding the gears, if you will, of working through grad school, I came out with a few skills. Um, That's good. Yeah, everybody gets some skills. Uh, food service, but. We were talking about um, all these different performances coming up in Kansas City for Baroque music and how vibrant that culture is. So you would think, you know, I think one of the arguments that a lot of people make is that, quote, it's not relevant, lol. Um, If that isn't the pot calling the kettle black, I don't know what is. But (laughs) so a lot of it is is, though, relevant today. So you're 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 an early music and Baroque scholar. How? is early and Baroque music relevant today? How do they relate? What can we learn from this period of time? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, okay, so something I find really amusing slash annoying, which I think, you know, we're trying to combat in a lot of ways with diacritical, is the fact that, you know, there are all these articles being published about musical entrepreneurship and how that's like so new and different from anything that's ever come before. And like, we're the first in 2019 or 2015 or whatever to ever do something like this. And I just want to look at those people and be like, you know nothing about history. You know nothing. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Okay, now done with Game of Thrones. In any case, yeah, I mean, I, so my research focuses on, at least right now, it focuses on basically, in part, the history of freelancing careers, musical entrepreneurship of the 17th and 18th centuries. Believe it or not, it existed. Um, So like, you know, something I've been writing about, for example, are like the earliest 
public concerts that were ever given. And like, there was some blog, I can't remember. I shouldn't even talk about it on here because I can't remember who wrote it. But there was some blog <laughs> post that came, it. yeah, why not? Yeah. You know, it's out there. Google search it. There are no rules. <laughs> so there's a blog post that someone wrote about how like, oh, it's so like new and unique to do, you know, pop-up concerts at bars and pubs. Like, how cool is that? I'm just like, um, where do you think concerts began? Oh, like, for real? It's not like this ever stopped. Like, yes, there was certainly like the elite culture of, the 19th and 20th centuries, which ruined music for everybody, basically, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> where music was only performed in the concert hall. Right. You know, but I mean, no, like if the if you go back to the earliest public concerts, like these things were crazy variety shows that were held in God knows where, like yeah. all over cities. Like I've found an ad for a public concert given in like 1702, um, where, you know, there was musical entertainment, there were dance, there was dancing, and then a guy rode his horse onto the stage, yeah. leapt, then like got off, leapt onto the back of the horse, stood on the horse and doing a handstand with one hand while drinking a bottle of wine. Awesome. Uh, let's okay. bring that back. Challenge to Kansas City musicians. <laughs> the first person to do that here, I'll give you all of my money. All of it. You wow. can have all of my money. All of it. And all, all the tea. All the Barista tea. Barista flex. Yeah. A value grand total of $30. I mean, I am going to take that challenge. Yeah. That sounds amazing. Most yeah, no. of that is the tea. So. There you go. There you go, everybody. Um, yeah. yeah, no, it's just like, I mean, what's so interesting about, especially the 17th and 18th centuries, and in and, 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 in ways earlier music too was like you know humans haven't changed like for no. better or for worse we're still awful <laughs> we're all still awful um but yeah i mean we've always humans have always musicians have always looked for ways of making money and they've always been really creative about it yeah and i've i think i mentioned this on like a previous episode or something maybe in passing but the oratorio is kind of making a comeback right now and i believe to my in my heart of hearts that that is due to the economic situation in which we find ourselves with the formerly the oratorio was incorrect definitely correct me if i'm wrong it was just kind of popped up because there weren't many public concerts and it was expensive to stage all of these operas that were going on and um like nobody could really afford or maybe nobody wanted to see a really effusive expensive opera and it was easier for concert producers to put an orchestra on stage put people together to do like a shorter in length uh a thing and it was more cost effective yeah no i mean the oratorio is definitely i mean that's you know, I mean, the oratorio appeared for a lot of reasons, but yeah, I mean, in part, especially Handel's oratorios, like he got out of opera composition eventually and started focusing exclusively on oratorio composition in part because operas were too expensive and he was like funding it himself. Right. And so he was like, hey, you know what? I can put on a show with like less expensive singers and no costumes and no scenery and people will like it. So they will come. Right. And that's uh, that's classical music and not pop music. You you made a really interesting comment when we were um, when we were initially talking about this episode before we got put the script together and stuff, which is that there's never been like classical music has never really been pop music, right? We, yeah, we've always had other things, right? Yeah, I think there's this misconception too that I hear people. Uh, talking about from time to time, which is like, oh, well, classical music was the popular music way back in the day. And that's not true. There's always been popular music. 
Like there in whatever century you go to, you know, whether it's a difference between secular, secular music and sacred music, um, or even later, just like pop music genres that are more geared towards amateur listeners and amateur performers, like who want to just sing along to something. It was and, the whole point of the beggars opera, right? Like just to yeah, insert sure. popular songs into an opera format and bring it to the people. Right. And then satirize basically everyone and everything in the whole world. Yeah, right. sure. I mean, this has been going on for centuries um, and so, yeah, like, I think there is this misconception of classical music being an elite culture. And again, it's because the 19th century ruined everything. Thanks, 19th century. <laughs> again. But, I mean, you guys know I'm mostly kidding. <laughs> mostly. Mostly. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, just if, if you think, if you go back and you think about, you know, someone like Bach, yeah, sure. I mean, he was writing a whole bunch of Lutheran cantatas, but he also wrote the Coffee Cantata, which if you have never heard it, that is an amazing piece of music. I have seen it performed live. Yeah, it's and, so much fun. And the other thing to know about Bach is that he was not popular in his... Nobody knew who he was. It wasn't until Mendelssohn started programming his stuff, like a hundred-something years later. It wasn't... Or two, I don't know. Yeah, almost a hundred, yeah. Yeah, crazy. He just like the discovery. He was like, there's this Bach person. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And then we've just never changed since then right yeah no I mean it's I, I just I think there are just a lot of misconceptions floating around about and you know in part I understand because like I believe in a world where we need to get away from the canon and I believe that we need more diverse representation in music of all eras and of, from all cultures I think that's really important um, but at the same time, lumping all of classical music, especially early music, together and calling it all the same thing, the same kind of culture, I think right. is really, I think it's just really limiting. And I, you know, there's so many, I mean, the early modern era. So again, I'm talking like history, even before 1700, but really 1750 and earlier. Like that's a different time. People thought differently about stuff back then, but yet there's so much we can learn from it because again, humans haven't changed in a lot of ways too. And I just find studying the history of that period really exciting um, and like going back and finding what those similarities are. Like for example, I've also written a lot on celebrity culture mm -hmm. in the 17th and 18th centuries. Nothing has changed. There were tabloids then, just as there are tabloids now. <laughs> I mean, it's like... They don't even cover different things. Right. They no, they don't. the same things. They do. And, like, we may have Twitter now, but honestly, like, it's pretty impressive what they were able to accomplish without Twitter. Or then. mail. <laughs> right. Good point. Or there's mail. no mail. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, like, there's just some really exciting stuff to learn um, from any historical era, but certainly going back, the farther that you do, I mean, stuff is weird, but like in a really interesting way. So don't be afraid of it. Just understand that it was a different time. Explore. There's some good stuff out there. That is a good, that is such a good point. And I, I think that'll wrap it up for us today. I wanted to, you want to, let's talk a little bit about KCBC before we get going here. Y'all have some exciting things coming up. Yeah. 
Um, actually, I mean, yeah, KCBC has a couple of, of concerts coming up. We have a, a fund. So the KCBC is the Kansas City Baroque Consortium. Not the Kansas City Bike Collective. Right. Not, don't get them confused, please. Um, no, KCBC is a great group. Uh, I'm on the board, so I am very biased. But it is run by our artistic director, Trilla Ray Carter, and just an amazing group of people who believe that Kansas City needs its own Baroque ensemble. Uh, we just wrapped up a three-concert series that was dedicated to women, composers, performers, and patrons of the Baroque period, and that was an amazing experience to be a part of. Uh, we have a fundraiser coming up on September 28th. You can check out our website, kcbaroque.org, for more information and uh, to get tickets there. But we also have other groups in town. I mean, KC Baroque does a summer series, so look out for us next summer. Um, and then we do some scattered performances throughout the year. But uh, Bach Aria Soloist is really prominent in town. They have mm -hmm. their season's just about to start, actually. So check them out. And then also Tadeum Antiqua is a choral ensemble that does, I, I think at least once a year, does a concert of all early music and usually even earlier, like Renaissance period stuff and sometimes even medieval music. So Kansas City even. has <laughs> even. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Kansas City has got a lot of really fun early music stuff going on. And, and I really encourage everyone to check it out, even if it's not your jam, just like go to one concert. Like, I think it will really challenge you in interesting ways. And, and again, you never have to go again if you don't like it, but seriously challenge yourself. Um, I think that's what we're trying to do with the stuff we talk about in this podcast and with Diacritical in general. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Sure. I'm so glad we finally did this. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Y'all, that'll wrap it up for us again this week. Um, just remember, as always, to follow us on social media. Uh, subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, quick shout out. We've got an exciting event coming up for you very soon. It'll happen on October the 19th. That's a Saturday. And that'll be the launch of our Scripts and Scores project. So if you are a visual artist, a director, a filmographer, I don't know if that's a profession. I think it is a profession, but um, let's, go yeah, let's go with it. A musician, composer, because uh, they're different things. Um, so, ooh. <laughs> ooh, shots fired. Going down the gauntlet. <laughs> Go and check us out. We're going to have so much more information for you upcoming, and that is a partnership with Stray Cat Film Center. The first event is going to be kind of like a speed dating thing. So it's not necessarily so much a speed dating so much as it's going to be like a mixer. We will have all of these committed creative people in the same place, and what we really want to do is facilitate your projects. We want to get people talking with one another and we want to make sure that another thing that Diacritical does and keeps ourselves honest is that we're going to be putting things out into the community. So please uh, check out that on our projects page and keep your ears peeled for more information coming up soon. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Bye-bye. <laughs>